Greetings and welcome. My name is James White. We've been doing a series of studies on the subject of the sufficiency and inspiration of the Christian scriptures, the Bible, and in asserting that the scriptures are sufficient for the Christian people, that we do not need to have additions or revelations that come thereafter. Some people object to that and say, well, even the Bible itself says otherwise, doesn't it? For example, they will quote from the Gospel of John in John chapter 21, verse 25, that reads, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And so, is this a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture? Actually, the objection assumes something about the claim that is not true. No one is stating that the Bible is a complete compendium of all human knowledge or even all religious knowledge. The claim is not that every bit of truth that could ever be known is found in the pages of Scripture. For example, you are watching this upon a television set and there is a set of instructions, very detailed instructions, as to how to put together all the electronic components that make up a television set. You can't find that from the Bible. Oh, I'm not saying that the Bible does not address issues like the worldview that allows for electronics to work and, and for us to do scientific investigation. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is the Bible itself is not meant to be a handbook on how to create or repair television sets or computers or, or the automatic transmission on a car. It was never intended to do those things. And therefore, it is not an objection to their sufficiency to say, well, they can't do everything. They can't give us all information. The same thing is true when we talk about religious knowledge. Certainly, there were things that Jesus said and did that are not contained in Scripture. Likewise, they're not contained anyplace else, for that matter. It is not an objection against sola scriptura to say that, well, Jesus did many other things because, you see, the Scriptures are not intended to be an encyclopedia. They're not intended to be an exhaustive accounting of everything that Jesus or the apostles or Moses or Isaiah or anyone else ever said or did. God gets to select exactly what it is that we need to meet our needs. There are certain things that he does not reveal about himself. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us and to our children. And so God has revealed certain things, but then... Sort of like putting up a fence, he says, here and no farther. I have given you this amount of revelation, and there is more than enough within those two fences to keep us busy throughout our lifetimes learning what God would have us to learn. But he has the right to say here and not beyond here. God is under no obligation to reveal everything about himself to his creatures. He knows what is wise as a heavenly father, for us to know. And so it is not an objection to say that, well, we don't know uh, what color Matthew's eyes were. We don't know uh, the exact color of the robes of all the 12 apostles. We don't know exactly what they ate at every apostolic meal, nor do we need to know. These are not objections to the sufficiency of Scripture. They're objections to a false concept that is not, in fact, the sufficiency of Scripture at all. Now, what do we believe about the accuracy of the Bible? And here, quite honestly, there are many people who will disagree with what I have to say in the world today because they start off with the assumption that God cannot speak clearly. They start off with the assumption that even if, if God tried to speak to man, man is so finite and so limited, maybe even so corrupted and so sinful, that he could not possibly 
record the revelation accurately and, and could not communicate it over time. But back in 1978, a, a, grou- a group of leading evangelical scholars came together and they produced a document confessing at least what evangelical faith is concerning the nature of the inspired scriptures. And what I really appreciate about this document is that they expressed each article in a positive statement and then a denial statement. So they make a positive claim about the scripture. And then to help illustrate that, they say, and we deny these following things related to this same point. It really does help to illustrate the nature of Scripture for us. And so I want to read a number of these articles and explain them to you so you can understand and make sure that you don't get pushed into a position where you're defending something we don't believe, where you're defending something about the Christian faith as a believer that we actually don't believe. That frequently does happen when we have encounters with others outside the Christian faith. They've heard certain objections, and sometimes their objections are not to what we really believe, but to what they think we should believe. And we need to be discerning and careful to recognize those types of objections and not defend things we don't actually believe. So the first article that I'll read for you says the following. We affirm that the scriptures are the supreme written norm by which God binds the conscience and that the authority of the church is subordinate to that of scripture. We deny that church creeds, councils, or declarations have authority greater than or equal to the authority of the Bible. If you saw our earlier studies, then you know why this would be. Scripture is theanustos. It is God-breathed. The church, the creation of Jesus Christ, the body of Jesus Christ is extremely important, but the church itself is not theanustos or God-breathed. The church listens obediently to the voice of God found in the Scriptures, but the church itself does not replace the Scripture or have a higher authority than the Scripture itself. The next article reads, We affirm that the written word in its entirety is revelation given by God. We deny that the Bible is merely a witness to revelation or only becomes revelation in encounter or depends on the responses of men for its validity. All this article is saying is that the scriptures themselves are revelation. Remember what, what Paul said? Scripture, that which is written, is what is theonustos, that which is inspired, that which is revealed from God. There are some who say, well, no, revelation can't be something that is written down in human language. It's something we experience. And so when we encounter these words in the Bible, then we experience revelation at that point. That's when it becomes revelation. This, of course, becomes very subjective. It becomes something that becomes based upon the individual. And this article is denying that that is the historic Christian position, which is certainly the case. The next article says, we affirm that God who made mankind in his image, has used language as a means of revelation. We deny that human language is so limited by our creatureliness that it is rendered inadequate as a vehicle for divine revelation. We further deny that the corruption of human culture and language through sin has thwarted God's work of inspiration. This takes us back to our very first study where I pointed out the fact that God can use language. He is a communicating being, and He can use language in revealing His Word to us. And so all this article is attempting to say is, though human language is limited, and though there can be such things as misunderstandings and things along those lines, as we all understand, still, language is sufficient for God to communicate 
what he needs to communicate to us in the form of the written word. The next article says, We affirm that God's revelation in the Holy Scriptures was progressive. We deny that later revelation, which may fulfill earlier revelation, ever corrects or contradicts it. We further deny that any normative revelation has been given since the completion of the New Testament writings. What is this saying? When we say that this revelation was progressive, what we mean is God started with the basic truths about himself and progressed to higher truths. So in the Old Testament, we have the Old Testament law. And that law points forward to its own fulfillment in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What we're not saying is that God could state one thing is true at one point and then immediately or even later say, well, that's not true. God does not say that I am merciful here and then say I'm not merciful over there. He is not going to contradict himself, abrogate things that he has revealed already in the past. There are some who would say that that takes place in Scripture, but that normally involves a misunderstanding of the text that they are examining. And this, this article is also saying that since the completion of the New Testament, that is, since those chosen by God to be apostles of Jesus Christ, to explain the gospel message, have completed their work, that there is not any normative revelation that comes after that, that is theanustos, that is God-breathed. That raises the issue of the canon of Scripture, which we'll address at a later point. The next article reads as follows. We affirm that the whole of Scripture and all its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. We deny that the inspiration of Scripture can rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts, or of some parts, but not the whole. Are they simply wasting paper by making these kinds of distinctions? No, because unfortunately some have said, well, parts of the Bible are inspired, parts are not. How do we know which one's which? Well, there wouldn't really be any way of knowing uh, unless we affirm that the entirety of Scripture is inspired. And some will say, well, uh, what inspiration gives us inspired concepts but not the words used to express the concepts. Well, then how do you truly know what the concepts are would be the question. So what the article is affirming is, is that inspiration goes to that which is written, and the only thing that is written are words. Those words are related to other words, yes, and the concepts definitely are inspired, but those concepts are communicated to us in the form of language, which means inspiration goes to the point of the very words themselves. The next article reads as follows. We affirm that inspiration was the work in which God, by His Spirit, through human writers, gave us His Word. Notice again, Word and Spirit together. The origin of Scripture is divine. The mode of divine inspiration remains largely a mystery to us. We deny that inspiration can be reduced to human insight or to heightened states of consciousness of any kind. The denial we've already discussed, that inspiration is not just simply men thinking thoughts about God or being raised to a little higher level in their thoughts about God. But what does it mean when the, it says the mode of divine inspiration remains largely a mystery to us? Well, what it's saying is we can affirm with the Apostle Peter that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, but the exact mechanism whereby the Spirit of God can cause a person to use their own language, to reflect on their own experience, to respond to the circumstances around them, 
And then as they write, what they write is from God exactly as he would have it. The very mechanism by which that works is not explained to us, nor does it need to be explained to us. The fact of its existence is asserted, but we do not need to know the exact mechanism. And in fact, if we ourselves have never experienced it, and it is a unique thing that is only, only exists in bringing about the Bible, how could we understand it even if God tried to tell us about it? It's beyond our experience, and that's what it's saying when it says this remains largely a mystery to us. It has to be a mystery to us for a simple reason. We learn by analogy and examining other examples around us, and there's no example of this taking place, so it would be difficult for us to understand. The next article reads as follows. We affirm that God in his work of inspiration utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writer's whom he had chosen and prepared. We deny that God, in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose, overrode their personalities. Very important. For we do not hold to a view of inspiration where men become the equivalent of an old typewriter, an automatic dictation machine, where the person's personality is wiped out, the mode of language that he used disappears. For example, I've had the privilege in teaching in seminary for many years. And aside from teaching theology and apologetics and things like that, I've also had the opportunity of teaching both Greek and Hebrew and introducing students to these wonderful languages. And when we go through the first year, the first element of the Greek language, by the end of that time, we are able to read the first epistle of John, 1 John. Why 1 John and not, say, Hebrews or Luke? It's very simple. On a scale of 1 to 10, the grammar and difficulty of language in 1 John is about a 2. Uh, in comparison to Hebrews and maybe Luke and Acts, which is an 8, 9, or 10, depending on the section. Those texts use very complicated syntax and grammar and vocabulary, and they're very difficult to work with. 1 John is really nice and simple. And so a first-year Greek student appreciates really nice and simple as his first reading assignment. And so it is very clear to anyone who looks at the original language of the Bible, and a good translation will bring this out, that we don't have just one person speaking using the same kind of language and the same personality and the same level of literary uh, accuracy and, and difficulty. And so, obviously... If we have the idea that when inspiration comes, people just sit there and they go into a trance and start writing something, that does not fit the reality of the text in the New Testament. Another good example of this, and you can see this in almost any good translation into another language from the, the Greek language, is when you compare, for example, the book of Ephesians with the book of Galatians. Ephesians, Romans, both share the same kind of style to where Paul has a, has a clear goal he's moving toward and he's presenting a, a logical, laid-out type of argument. Especially Romans, this is the case. But you get to Galatians. And if you're reading that in the original language, it's choppy. It's, it's rushing toward its, its conclusion. Sometimes he just skips over a verb expecting you to fill it in for yourself. The writer of Galatians was very emotionally involved in what he was saying in a way that is not the case of the Ephesians and Romans. 
Now, when you read the book, you find out why. There were people who were undercutting Paul's authority in Galatia, and they were preaching a false gospel that would destroy the souls of these beloved friends of the Apostle Paul. And so he's extremely involved, and there is, there is emotion, there's anger involved in what Paul says. Some of the harshest words in all the Bible are found in that epistle to the churches of Galatia. And so you can see in the actual writing the differences. You can see the personality of the individual involved. So the idea that somehow inspiration destroys that personality and destroys that individuality simply doesn't line up with the facts when you examine the text of the Scripture itself. And so when people say, well, the Word of God simply has to, it all has to be exactly the same, it has to be used the same vocabulary and the same language. It can only come basically from one person. And you can't have humans speaking. That's not the Christian view of inspiration. Since God has chosen to give us his revelation, he's chosen to give it to us in a way that we can understand, that will speak to us. Because you see, we read the Bible in all sorts of different states, do we not? God and his sovereignty, sometimes we're suffering. Sometimes we are sad. Sometimes we have experienced great loss. And if he has not communicated to us in such a way that we can read those things and we can read his word in those states, then what good is it going to be for us? But there are other times when we read the scriptures in great states of joy or contentment, satisfied with God's providence in our life. God has spoken to us in his word in a way that we can understand. And those who say, well, I just don't believe God can do that, well, you need to get a bigger God. You need to get a God who can because God's our maker. He knows us well enough to be able to do this. And so that, in essence, is what the article uh, is referring to when it, uh, when it discusses this idea of not destroying or overriding their personalities. The next article says, We affirm that inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, guaranteed true and trustworthy utterance on all matters of which the Bible authors were moved to speak and write. We deny that the finitude or falseness of these writers, by necessity or otherwise, introduced distortion or falsehood into God's Word. Now, what do they mean here? Very simple. Just because God chooses to use uh, the Apostle Jude to write his small epistle, does not mean that he had to confer omniscience or divine knowledge of all things on Jude. Jude is only writing about the things God moves him to write about. He's not writing about nuclear physics. He's not writing about biology. And so he does not have to have omniscience about all things. Many people would say, well, for, for divine revelation to come through a human mechanism would mean that we have to somehow be changed. Our nature has to be changed so we become omniscient. The, the finiteness, the limitedness of human beings means that there must be distortion or falsehood in God's Word. And once again, I simply say, the sovereign God who is eternal, who knew all things before the beginning, knew exactly what He was creating and how to work with that which He created so that these types of assertions simply do not need to be made. Certainly the Lord Jesus, knowing that Moses was a fallen and finite man, it did not follow from his perspective that those words he was quoting back there in Matthew 22 must be distorted or must have error in them. He recognized that that was not the case as well. 
The next article reads, We affirm that Scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible so that, far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters it addresses. We deny that it is possible for the Bible to be at the same time infallible and errant in its assertions. Infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished, but not separated. Now, that can sound a little bit complex. What is actually being referred to here? The Bible is not going to mislead us when it says this is the truth about this matter. Now, please notice what it's saying. It is true and reliable in all the matters it addresses. The Bible does not address all matters. And you cannot blame the Bible when Christians, when interpreting the Scriptures, go beyond the Scriptures and make applications the Bible itself does not make. One of the greatest source of objections to the Christian Scriptures in most of the world today is from what Christians have thought the Bible was saying in the past when they had not accurately handled it, they had not used the, the rules of exegesis, which we'll discuss at a later point, to accurately handle and discern what the original intention of the authors were. We must distinguish between popular interpretations of the past and what the Scriptures themselves say. And so what this assertion is saying is the Bible is true and reliable in all the matters that it addresses. The idea that you can say, well, I will grant the Bible infallibility. I will believe what the Bible has to say in religious matters. However, I will also say that the Bible is errant in the assertions that it makes. Leaves you in a position where you don't have any solid or logical grounds to defend what you're saying. It becomes all a matter of personal taste. Why have you said the Bible is infallible when you say it's an errant? The, when you say it's an error, the two go together. You cannot have a solid foundation and say that the Bible is, is an error in what it says in these areas, and then turn around and say, but I will grant to it some sort of infallible authority. You simply can't make those things work together very well at all. The next article reads as follows. We affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious or redemptive themes exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on the creation, the flood. And of course, here is where most people have their biggest problems because they're going to assert that the Bible is in error in its assertions on many scientific and cosmological topics. But the fact of the matter is, in the vast majority of instances when people make this kind of assertion, they're actually trying to force the Bible to make statements on subjects that it actually is not addressing at all. They are confusing the language the Bible uses to communicate to the people of its day with assertions about cosmology, the universe, and things like that. When we look specifically at how to properly handle the Word of God, how to exegete the Word of God. We will see that this is one of the most common problems. But the point here is that we need to allow the Word of God to speak to the subjects it speaks about and not extend beyond that to subjects that the Bible does not address. When we allow the Bible to be the Word of God as it was revealed in its original context, 
It is in that context we can say that those original words are God-breathed. They, they are from men as they, they are from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They are God speaking to us as Jesus said. And as such, they carry full authority and truth for us. Thank you very much.